Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, video art pioneer Dara Birnbaum. But before we get to this week's program, some behind-the-show mechanics. We've updated some of our RSS feed settings to better take advantage of recent changes to how places such as iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and SoundCloud offer podcasts. That makes now a really good time to ask listeners to help us out. The place you download the Man Podcast allows you to give us a rating or a review. Please give us as many stars as you think we deserve, and leave us a review that tells other people why they might enjoy this show. Among the places that have begun to allow podcast reviewing, by the way, is Facebook. Reviews and ratings are how the big sites steer new downloaders to podcasts, so we're grateful for all the help y'all might provide. On to the show. Our lead guest, Dara Birnbaum, is included in Breaking News, turning the lens on mass media at the J. Paul Getty Museum. The exhibition examines how artists have used newspapers, magazines, and televised news programs to consider media, news, and the messages included therein. The exhibition was curated by Arpad Kovacs and will be on view through April 30th. Birnbaum's work often includes pointedly feminist critiques of mass media, including of entertainment and journalism. European museums have taken the lead in recent retrospectives of Birnbaum's work, including the recent The Dark Matter of Media Light, which was shown at SMAC in Ghent, Belgium, and at the Seralvis Foundation in Porto, Portugal. And before that, a separate survey was shown in Vienna and in Sweden. Manpodcast.com has links to several of the Birnbaums that we will discuss this week. I'm afraid we couldn't find web video of one of the most important works, 1975's Mirroring, which I think is one of the most important early works by any artist working in video. On the second segment, curator Julie J. Thompson discusses Begin to See, the photographers of Black Mountain College. The exhibition surveys photography made at Black Mountain, including landscapes, documentary work, including a performance, experiments with the medium, and more. The exhibition is at the Black Mountain College Museum and Arts Center in downtown Asheville, North Carolina, through May 20th. But first, Dara Birnbaum, after the break. The Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University presents Sarah Oppenheimer, S337473, and Carmen Herrera, Lines of Sight, through April 16th. Oppenheimer's site-responsive, perception-altering installation was created with support from a Wexner Center Artist Residency Award. Originally curated by Dana Miller for the Whitney Museum of American Art, Lines of Sight is the first museum survey of Herrera's elegant, geometric work in nearly two decades, and this is the show's only stop outside of New York City. For more information, go to wexarts.org. The Hirshhorn Museum and Sculpture Garden in Washington, D.C. presents Yayoi Kusama Infinity Mirrors, the first exhibition to explore the evolution of the legendary artist's iconic installations. Featuring an unprecedented six of her dazzling environments, Infinity Mirrors is the most significant North American tour of her work in nearly two decades, opening February 23rd and on view at the Hirshhorn through May 14th. Visit hirshhorn.si.edu for more. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University presents Nina Chanel Abney Royal Flush, the first solo exhibition in a museum for Abney, a 34-year-old artist from Chicago who is identified by Vanity Fair magazine as one of the many artists championing the Black Lives Matter movement. The exhibition is a 10-year survey of about 30 of the artist's paintings, watercolors, and collages. Through her monumental paintings, Abney gives viewers the chance to take part in a meaningful conversation about issues of racial violence and social justice. She uses bold shapes and colors and the language of today's digital and celebrity cultures to take on controversial topics. 
She confronts those parts of human nature that seem easiest to ignore, prejudice, stereotypes, and biases. She has said that her work is, quote, easy to swallow, hard to digest. On view February 16th through July 16th at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. Visit nasher.duke.edu slash abney. And we're back. Dara Birnbaum, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Let's start with local TV news analysis, the work you made with Dan Graham in 1980, and that's on view now at the Getty in the exhibition Breaking News. The work looks at both how TV news is put together from a production truck style facility, and then also how a family experiences the TV news. And it kind of offers up a certain analogy about how filtered and partially experienced it all is for all involved. The flicker of the camera in the outset, the way the, the camera capturing the news anchors flickers a bit, becomes a kind of metaphor for the flickering attention of the family. So this is a 1980 piece. You, you, you'd been working with video for a while. How did the similarity between the way the product was produced and the way the product was received come to be of interest to you? Uh, that, that's a good but difficult question. I, I think we were more engaged in the structure of of what we were trying to do and knowing what the receivership could potentially be but never getting real feedback on the receivership of it. To be honest, the original project, I believe, that Dan was inspired by an earlier work by Michael Asher and for that, Michael uh, had turned the camera onto the control room that was issuing out one of the Super Bowls so that on an alternative channel, while everyone was watching the game, he decided to do this in inversion and reveal what was emanating, what pushed out, you know, the emission of what that game was to a television audience by showing the control room. And Dan picked up on that, and he started to get interested in, as I had been, in, in local TV news. And he had been writing about it and asked me to come on as a collaborator to see what the structure of that could be. And what we were trying to do is show three concurrent realities which was the news itself, its issuance out of the control room, and its receivership of the audience. The ideal goal was to make this all a simultaneous reality on an open cable channel to mm -hmm. run concurrent with the news, but we were on a 24-hour delay. That was just what had to happen in the, in the project to get it through. And it was done in Toronto through Rogers Cable, I think. Gave us the following night exactly at the same time that the news, the local TV news, was being delivered. And uh, we had an alternative channel, so you could kind of switch between the two. And what you see is how formulaic, actually, the news really is, that it follows a fairly tight scripting, even though the content, of course, differs. This main structure doesn't. And Dan was very interested, as I was, in this kind of 
family of news people. The kind of anchor man is the father, the weatherman is more the younger son usually, who delivers the news. Occasionally a woman would be allowed into that family position. And so what you're watching is a recording of the, of the news from one day from when we took it, played back parallel to the actual news on a 24-hour delay. One of the things that really strikes me about this piece, and as a lot about a number of the pieces that, that we'll discuss, is, is that, you know, except for like the hairstyles, this loop holds true now, 37 years later. When you were working on this piece in 1980, TV news had been around for a couple of decades. Was it a piece you thought was very much about 1980, or was it something that you thought was likely to hold up for, you know, four decades as kind of the way it would continue to be? I don't think I I actually knew it. I thought that it was very pertinent to disclose what the formula and structure was at that time. I didn't see television moving completely as it is. I mean, there's a very stationary position of television, whereas your major networks still carry news mostly in the same way, like in the U.S., CBS, NBC, ABC. That doesn't deal with their affiliates on, like, MSNBC, which break format. I'm trying to remember when CNN was established, which kind of broke format of the news into an extended 24-hour version. We, we were concerned almost with what the very conventionalized post-World War II news format was when news became conflated from its pre-20-minute version to an expanded format kind of inflated bubble version. And at that time, you started to develop these characters or characteristics that were addressing a family almost like a mirror family, the family of news to the family at home during prime time. Well, let's go back to a few years before local TV news analysis to the mid-1970s. And before we get into this kind of early part of your video career, I just to establish some timeline, you went to school um, and studied painting at the San Francisco Art Institute. You worked in architecture at Lawrence Halperin. The point I'm making clumsily is that you didn't come out of um, an MFA program with, you know, a porta pack molded to your hip or anything. And so in the in the mid 70s, kind of around 1975, you started making work that pulls back the metaphorical curtain to show how media, especially television, was produced. And then you use the means of production, which are made visible to the viewer often, to critique the content. Was that a core idea that that got you started working in video, or is that something you came to quite quickly after beginning to work with video? Yeah, I, I would say, you know, I was first exposed, my, my first degree is in architecture. And uh, I, the last person I did work with and for was Lawrence Halpern and Associates. And my thought was that he was trying to be the one of the first environmental design firms, and that appealed to me greatly. 
I was kind of almost against building at that point. And I was doing a lot of presentational specialty work and workshops with the Lawrence Halpern firm and asked for some time off during a very dull period in the 70s where building construction was down to take off like the guys in the office were for a small sabbatical to attend the Art Institute to bring back kind of maybe other ways and means of, of, of better, to be honest, drawing and presentational modes that we could use in the office. But when I got to the Art Institute, I became very taken by the ability to finally, because in architecture we weren't allowed to have fine arts classes, to jump into that sphere. And when I went back to Halperin, the job was there, but still very slow, and it kept pushing me toward the arts. Then I also was a little disengaged with what was going on in the country at that time, or wanted to move and moved to Europe and by accident found video in Florence by a gallery then called Centro Diffusione Grafica by Maria Gloria Bococchi. And she was encouraging artists who traveled through like Vito Acconci, Dan Graham, Joan Jonas, Charlemagne Palestine, to do video while they were there as an experimental form. And that was the first time I saw it. The artists that were around there, because it's a smaller town, we would get to know each other, perhaps in a way that we wouldn't have in a city like New York. And they kept telling me, come back to New York. It's very fertile ground right now. There's a lot happening. And when I came back to New York in around 75, Someone lent me the first porta pack, and I think the first works I did, which were done in '75 and '6, were like six movements that were very much influenced, in my opinion, by someone like Vito Acconci. They were performative works, but within a year or two, and being interviewed for whether I would show or not and recommended me for artist space, I quickly said, well, what's the most important thing I can say? And the actual thing was television because I felt that television was a language not confronted yet, that there was a lot of film theory, film semiotics by Christian Metz were around, available, Screen Magazine out of London, but no one was talking about television language, and that was the dominant language of the day. So very quickly for artist space, showing with a woman who was like a colleague, Suzanne Kufler, together were offered a show, and we presented individual works, and I thought the most important thing I can say at this point is, an, is the beginning of an examination of television language. That's interesting. So you did kind of briefly consider film as an interest, but landed on, on video. Well, no, the, the early works for video immediately. I mean, I, I did very little film, you know, but the uh, Conchi-esque influenced works were, were video immediately. There was someone here who lent me a porter pack, and I did very much self-performative works that were inside an enclosed space that showed 
much more the anxiety perhaps of a woman in confrontation with camera and the extension of camera to viewer, but from a more, I'd say, a, a directly woman's point of view rather than the Akanchi, which ends up being, in my opinion, looking years later, a, a very male-oriented type of view. If, if I had to pick a favorite work of yours from, from this, this early period, I'd pick Mirroring. 1975 work. To me, it's kind of the foundational work of uh, you, that sets up everything that, that, that you do afterward. Do you remember where that work came in the process of your beginning to play with the camera and, 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 and the equipment, the porta pack, and how quickly you got from marriage of idea to doing what you do in mirroring? I do know that I had what I called six exercises that, that now are actually out in release form, limited release form. Uh, I didn't anticipate that they were done as exercises, of which mirroring was one. And I, I too, that's a favorite of mine. I was waitressing so that I could get away from architecture, <laughs> totally devote myself, my mind and my heart, I hope, to art. And I saved up every penny I could as a waitress to buy the two books that were put out on the four fundamental theories of Lacan. And that was in the air anyway in the arts. And reading them, I kind of totally fell in love with a theoretical position and wanted to see if aspects of that position could be created through a work such as mirroring. It, it came quickly. It's all self-done. It's trying to, as you know, do a examination of mirror compared to supposed real self and which image becomes stronger or can take over the other. It's a kind of duality and a kind of dualistic, almost, I think, choreographed work. It's the kind of video where when you're sitting before a screen, the movement of the figure across the screen glues your eyes to the screen because you don't, because you're looking for a trick. You're looking for how the thing works, what the thing is. Your eyes are trying to f figure it out in conjunction with your brain. I, it's just, it's, 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 it's a really kind of thrilling piece. You mentioned it was one of six movements, six video works from 1975. Three of the others are, are titled Shared Anxieties, Abandoned Slewed, and Autism. And the other two are Control Peace and Bard, mirroring six minutes long. We'll have a link to a still of it on manpodcast.com. If it's up on UbuWeb, we'll have a link as well. So mirroring, mirroring dates to 1975. There were a number of artists who explored film in the late 1960s, such as Michael Snow and the great famous 1967 Wavelength who were mining camera and editing tricks, if you will, as a way of opening up critiques and ideas. Were you conscious of, of, of their work and, and that idea that jumping into the medium and maybe taking advantage of some tricks or techniques could open up commentary? No. no. <laughs> I came out of the Art Institute in San Francisco not a big Michael Snow school. <laughs> uh, it wasn't, actually. It wasn't. And I was in painting. And I, I actually was a little scared to go toward film and video, which were just starting to be offered there. 
and around 73 when I went, 74. The reason being, it was a big enough leap to come from architecture into painting that I dared not move into to moving image. I was more aware of Brackage, let's say, than Michael Snow. Probably that group, Broughton, out of San Francisco, but relatively innocent at the same time. And uh, I think that the big influence on me was more reading Christian Mertz, who was a film theorist, and talking about the semiotics of film language and reading Screen Magazine. And as I said, I was pushed more directly into television. That was the main interest was video and television. I tried very little film. I remember that Goran, who worked with Godard, used to say he loves film because he loves licking the leader. And I am absolutely the opposite kind of personality. And for me, video was like a a chess game. It still is, you know, where everything is kind of running in your mind in a certain way and you're organizing the pieces and then putting them down and they kind of magically appear. It's much more a mind game, you know, than a visual looking through celluloid. And that excited me a lot. There's a line of feminist art historical thinking that goes like this in the mid-1970s, or really in the 1970s period, Women moved into new media to make work because the field was open. Men hadn't been there. They could have it to themselves and make things on their terms without having to exist within male-dominated constructs. It's a great art historical idea, but did you think of any of that in the 70s? <laughs> I, I know that line or lineage. You know, there's some some truth to, to that. There were women early on that did get in, even... Video Freaks, for an example, who, in re-representing their work lately in the last year in places like New York and maybe on the West Coast, had at first more accentuated the men who were operative in their group, although there were women there. One of the main theoretical journals through Raindance Corporation, I think, was started actually by two women, one of which was Beryl Coral, along with Ira Schneider, I think, and Radical Software. So there was the ability for women to enter in a, in a, in a way that did seem slightly easier entree into the field. I don't know if I buy that core diatribe about It's new and women are new to art and this and that, and therefore it's the perfect mesh. You know, I come from architecture, and when I entered architecture, I was the only woman who graduated in my class. And I started at 16, so that's very, very young. No other woman graduated in three years. There were about 6 to 12 of us in over a six-year program So I think I learned very, very early on to develop a strong voice and to develop it from my own self, but not in the sense of, oh, video is here, it's open, and I'm a woman, and I'm new, and therefore this fits perfectly. 
It, it, it was more the mechanism. I still felt video was strongly controlled by men, but you did have early voices such as Mary Lucier, Simone Forte, Joan Jonas. That is absolutely true. In a 2008 interview with Barbara Schroeder and Karen Kelly for Bomb Magazine, you said that mirroring led you into technology transformation Wonder Woman, which is probably your most famous piece, one of the most iconic pieces of the decade. And I mean, just, you know, it's it's one of the major pieces of the century, really. How did mirroring lead you in into Wonder Woman? Was it, maybe I should just leave it there and let you, <laughs> let you explain. I mean, there, there, there is a, a strong mirroring sequence in Wonder Woman. Right at the beginning, too, yeah. It's kind of centered, I think. It, it, it's a bit centered. It's purposely taking that one episode where actually the mirror room is in a kind of club, maybe a disco club, where a lot of, just to give you a background story, a lot of agents from the government, governmental agents... Uh, even spies would go in there and that was their kind of dance club and Wonder Woman found this out and she found out there's a mirror room and the mirror room takes away the consciousness of the person they bring up there so they can get the secret governmental secrets out of them. She, uh, through her superpowers, cuts her way and you can see uh, when you when you repeat, edit it and concentrate on that moment is it's a very strong shot i don't know how intentional it was in the framing from the more male producers and directors and editors who made it but she cuts through her own image to get out of the mirror room and she actually cuts her own throat to do that it's actually going against her own throat and then she cuts a hole that's kind of ovid kind of female construct womb and kind of jumps through it. I don't know beyond my, as I said, kind of interest in in the, the mirror, the idea of the mirror image, especially coming out of Lacan. You know, the, the idea of an identifiable image of, of self, which at a certain stage and process in growing up, is identifiable but not incorporated into the self. And in this case, Wonder Woman has to fight her own image to get out. So in that way, it's a kind of continuation of interest I had at the time. There's also a probably coincidental rhyme. In, in mirroring, it looks as if you're, you're turning around, whether you are or not. Oh, I am. Oh, you are. I didn't pick that up. I, I walked back to the camera. The camera's out of frame, and each time I make the walk, what I'm doing is adjusting the focal length on it, so that the first you're 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 looking at the kind of mirror image in perfect focus, but you don't know it's a mirror image. Then walking toward the frame, it kind of gives it away. Each time I walk back, I turn it closer and closer to the reel, so the reel eventually takes over the mirror. And, and, of course, Wonder Woman spins three times and does all kinds of magical things as a result. My guest is Dara Birnbaum. We'll be right back after a break. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Ron Muick, 
an exhibition of major works by the contemporary sculptor. These hauntingly realistic figures showcase the artist's playful use of scale and explore the human condition, the nature of physical existence, and the ambiguity of the unknown. Now on view exclusively at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston, visit mfah.org slash for more. The Getty invites you to explore its first online-only exhibition, The Legacy of Ancient Palmyra. War in Syria has irrevocably changed the ancient city of Palmyra, once a bustling center of culture and trade. For centuries, traveling artists and explorers have documented the site in former states of preservation. This online exhibition captures Palmyra as it was photographed for the first time by Louis Veen in 1864 and illustrated in the 18th century by the architect Louis-Francois Cassas. Explore this ancient site at getty.edu slash palmyra. Deanne Arbus saw the divineness in ordinary things. SF Moment invites you to explore the formative years of this iconic photographer's unique vision at Deanne Arbus in the Beginning, an exhibition of over 100 photographs, many on display for the first time. In the Beginning considers Arbus's early interest in portraiture, which would come to define her career and reveals her evolution from a 35mm format to the now widely imitated square format she adopted in 1962. Deanne Arbus in the Beginning is on view through April 30th at SF MoMA. Get tickets at sfmoma.org. And now back to my conversation with Dara Birnbaum. So from kind of mirroring forward through the Wonder Woman piece, in artwork and after artwork for, for a number of years, you considered how women put themselves forward in mass media. Probably the most famous of those works, other than Wonder Woman, is Kiss the Girls, Make Them Cry, which is the one that engages uh, the Hollywood Squares game show. Weird question, maybe. Did you think about these same questions about how women put themselves forward as painters, given that your background was in art school as a painter? No. <laughs> so it was entirely an engagement with, with media and the contemporary, not rooted in a... Yeah, I think it was just that I was always amazed by Hollywood Squares when I dealt with it, was on up to three times a day on a national syndication on some stations. I was going after primetime shows. Wonder Woman was on primetime and a very highly had high ratings. Hollywood Square is the same. To be able to repeat a show three times a day in syndication is pretty amazing. That tic-tac-toe box stage set that I felt like I grew up with in Queens where, you know, the Joni Mitchell song or something, Little Boxes and, you know, that's how people grew up in this kind of overly populated new middle class of post-war II, which was the introduction of television mainly, you know, as our vocabulary. This so perfectly depicted it. Also, as Benjamin Booklow pointed out, he very much liked the aspect of almost the, the, the lights as a reward, you know, on that stage set where this twinkling light reward of the little boxes that had actors and actresses in it, but ones who are not readily known as known. It was a mixture of both, but I concentrated more on three of the women 
and their gestures, especially in introducing themselves to an audience of millions of people and how very exaggerated when you isolate and repeat those gestures that was. So everything we've been talking about so far has been single channel, single monitor, and that's more or less where you would stay into the 80s. And as we get into 1990, you begin to make works for... I'm going to stop you that there there was a work that was the first installation work in 78, which was The Drift of Politics. Oh, was that? Oh, that was too. That was, yes, yes. Yeah, ju- just to say that it, it did start then, I think, let's see, Wonder Woman was 78, 79, so sitting right on top of that, I I was still examining TV, and for me, a drift of politics was looking at the two-shot in television, which occurred most in sitcom, and I picked out Laverne and Shirley as the example to concentrate on. And then you start using mini-monitors as we get deep into the 80s and, and into 1990 with works like Tiananmen Square, Break-In Transmission, and Transmission Tower Sentinel in 92. What what motivated you to do installations with not not just two monitors but mini monitors, kind of constructed spaces almost, if you will? Well, the 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 only mini monitors actually were done in Tiananmen Square break and transmission, and that was done in 1990, and that was as a reaction to the summer of '89 with Tiananmen Square. I had actually, in 1987 through 89, worked on a very large-scale, site-specific work called Rio Video Wall. That was in Atlanta, Georgia. And that was to build a wall out of a certain kind of monitor that would relate most maybe toward the Sony Cubic at that time, stackable monitors, even though large screens were coming in. I was very taken by the idea that the television frame was no longer sacred and that through electronics, one could break through the frame and create this larger matrix vision and did the real video wall out of 25 monitors. It was the first digital wall ever brought into this country out of Germany. After I finished that work in 89, I wanted to see how one could approach a different kind of event, meaning the summer of 89 in Beijing of is something so large that actually take it and reduce it to what at that time was Sony Watchmen. And those were the mini monitors. And the Watchmen was that you had to view it straight on. And so I established these depots that told different parts of the what I felt to be the story or the essences of Tiananmen Square as a viewer not as being there, but as the information was coming to us. And how would I take a viewer in a museum or an art institution and walk them through a kind of parkour? Parkour? I, 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 I never I, know if it's parkour or parkour. parkour. 
but I never, I mean, one or the other. And take them, take the viewer and force them into this walking through the installation to come close to a very small vision of what was kind of getting through at a time when the Chinese government took away permission for satellite transmission from places like CNN and CBS, etc. And machines such as fax machines were starting to be used to get images out. So different parts of the story are told in different ways, including showing when CNN was exactly taken off air, when CBS was taken off air, when the first moment of violence was coming. And each of these you see in a different depot or station. And those were the mini monitors. Yeah, you can move around and feel like you're experiencing history physically with a certain appropriate feeling of dislocation even as you know exactly where you are. <laughs> and I think it was to really be like small lights that you come upon and realize, my God, that small light is a very, very large image. And instead of portraying it as a big image, you had to get more intimate with it. Then there was a one regular, let's say, size, slightly larger monitor in the room, in the space, and a hidden surveillance switcher. And that switcher went around and made grabs at all these smaller watchmen. So as you were watching, the image sometimes is taken from you and put on the large screen and constantly being re-edited, kind of like television news. One of the things about, about this work and, and, and Transmission Tower Sentinel is that they are definitely not works about pop culture. They're definitely work about history. Throughout various parts of art's history, history painting was considered the highest form of painting. Were you interested in engaging with historical moments as a way of, I don't know, stepping up in weight class, if you will? No, no. Although I, I admire very much like the later paintings by Goya, for example, that I feel are very political. Uh, an orientation of black paintings, it is that the events that were happening were so strongly dominating our landscape that I felt something needed to be said. But it was very hard for me to sometimes say something directly. For example, when I was asked into Document Nine and commissioned to do a work I did Transmission Tower Sentinel. It's really oriented toward the Gulf War, but it doesn't show any direct footage because I couldn't face that footage from the Gulf War. I did ask Allen Ginsberg, whom I had recorded in a student event where I was the only person allowed to record in 1988, that he opened the conference, four-day conference or so, on one of his poems of whom bomb, who do we bomb? And I asked permission to take that footage and make that one of the main sets of images that would ride down this tower sequentially, chant-like, as he did, whom bomb, who do we bomb, why do we bomb, we bomb who? And he gave me permission and also seemed excited at the moment about it because he said, 
It's a poem he wrote originally for the Vietnam, against the war in Vietnam. But he took it back out to rewrite aspects of it toward the Gulf War. So it fits so perfectly. And there are three main sets of images that go on in Transmission Tower that run sequentially. One of Bush's Thousand Point of Light speech, who I make a very small image for what I thought was a very small man, sorry, sliding down, reciting Thousand Point of Light. And then student uprisings at the time that were happening, where students were for the first time in 22 years gathering together for national conventions to try to set a new to the left party platform. And so they kind of rise up against this whom bomb, you know, bombing kind of situation. And those utilized not large monitors, but not the mini monitors. It was a sequence of eight monitors, like a linear video wall. So the real video wall kind of prepped me for the ability with a very good editor to be able to create a linear video wall. It's easy to imagine how war as a subject for art is something that will last and become recursive and, you know, it's fresh every time there's a new conflagration. And indeed, your most recent work, which we'll get to in a minute, is is also about war. But there are other works you've made, including in this period, that also kind of have historic precedents. I'm stumbling toward the 1990 work, Cannon, Taking to the Streets, Part 1, Princeton University, Take Back the Night, which is a piece about sexual assault and rape and a campus's response to it through a night march and also through that footage how a bunch of kind of dumb stereotypical frat boys react as if they're being attacked simply because people are organizing against rape and assault. I should start this one with my my usual art historical question. There's a long history of rape and sexual assault in art, mostly of it being aestheticized in the Lida or Europa way. Were you consciously engaging art historical precedents by taking a more au courant tack? No, that wasn't directly on my mind. I I was teaching. I mean, these are great things to bring up, and maybe some things are un or subconscious sometimes. Oh, you know? I think that happens, yes. Right, you know, that one comes from that. I have a great admiration, and that's a silly way to put it, of the history of art. That That is what, uh, I mean, there are so many histories of art, so we can't say that, but there is a love, you know, and it, it goes back to looking historically, but that wasn't particularly on my mind. Mm. What was on my mind is that I was teaching at Princeton University and the Take Back the Night marches were actually started in around 73 in San Francisco for women only against any kind of battery, assault, harassment, rape. And the idea was to take back the night where when most of these unfortunate incidences had occurred that one would gather in force in numbers to revisit places where such incidences took place and kind of reown in the ability to have the strength of others surrounding you, reown that territory or that situation or re-envision that moment but to take it back. 
And Princeton, as one of the colleges across the country, tried to keep the take the back the night marches alive. When I taught there, there there had been already a, a take back the night march from the year before, and I was shown the footage of that, and it it really hit me in a very deep way, of which I wanted to say something about it. And how do you do that? That footage is basically originally all their own VHS footage from the march in, I think, 87 or 88. And how do you show that without it being an expose or a, a, another seductive tool about something? Uh, how do you show the real intentions of what the march was? And those guys that are kind of so stereotypical you know, frat boys. It was amazing to me to teach on what is considered one of the best universities in the country and have that go on was quite amazing. There was a woman's center, but it, it could have been stronger, but it's great it was there because Princeton was originally an all-male campus. I was able to, to work with the students who had shot it and I edited it very carefully and treated it so that it could stand up and hold up on screen and show aspects of the march. This piece, as well as, as Hostage, which I don't have the date for in front of me, and the kind of third part of Damnation of Faust, which is, I think, 87, are all pieces that question whether viewing is passive or whether the viewer has responsibility and even agency, which is different from, from the earlier pieces, which involve mirroring for me is sitting and solving. Do you remember when or why you became interested in trying to determine whether the viewer has responsibility or agency? No, I, I think that it was on my mind, even with the way I showed Wonder Woman in the A Chair Salon that the viewer could approach or reject the image that was being played, that by shifting it into that kind of context in a hair salon that only owned one monitor, which was the only place, only store in downtown Manhattan at that time in uh, 1980 that owned a monitor, whether I could place it into that context and whether people going by, passerbys, would, because the image was immediately recognizable, be entranced by it or actually eventually realizing it was altered would be either disengaged or actually rejected. Can I jump in with one quick thing? It might be important to remember that at this point in the mid to late 1970s, video and monitors were nowhere near as ubiquitous across the urban fabric as they are now in 2017. I mean, now I always, when I lecture, I say, you know, then you, you could hardly find one, but at that time, and now you can't get away from one, you know, so it, it's completely different. But there there was only the one store in Soho that had one monitor, and they they owned one tape, which was the Italian version of Woodstock. And 
I asked them, you know, whether or not I could show my work on the weekends on that monitor because it could pivot and face out the window, you know, to the street and the sound could go out to the street. And the woman said, like, well, what is your work about? And I'm sometimes okay, but sometimes not okay in really describing well to to someone, like someone in a hair salon, what the work is about. So I said, it's about Wonder Woman. And she said, well, well, that's great. I love Wonder Woman. And I've been told I look like her, and she did. And that's how I got one of my first shows. <laughs> that's great. I do I do think that historical details that have nothing to do with what's in the work sometimes matter a lot, right? <laughs> so let's speed forward, although I guess not too far forward, to a, a, a new work. Your most recent major installation is titled Psalm 2930. It debuted in Paris last year. It juxtaposes serene visuals such as of Italian Alps and, and, and Lake Como with war footage from, from the Syrian Civil War. I referenced it a little bit earlier in, in, in those terms. And you've talked about it as asking if suffering can be portrayed in such a way that allows for reflection, which is a question that, of course, has filled uh, photographic and image-related theory over the last couple decades. At the end of the project, after you'd installed it, after you'd been through it, did you have in your own mind an answer or maybe a clearer idea of whether suffering could be portrayed in a way that allows for reflection? Well, I mean, the goal was to do that. And with the works, sometimes I, I do let them go and breathe on their own. And it takes years for me to be able to answer those questions. But that was the, the, the main goal, was to set the gallery, the Marion Goodman Gallery in Paris, into a more atmospheric situation. And it had two parts. One was a central chamber, and then the... That viewers could literally walk into, kind of a dark space with a screen. With a, with a screen, projected image. And the outside were these more mountainous, serene, or stoic, solid views, perhaps of a kind of aestheticized beauty or a transcendent beauty in a certain way, that, that is there. I mean, that this was shot by me, but it was shot, you're correct, it's, it's Italy. And to use a chant that was written by David from the Early Testament, and the chant is about healing. And it was, I used a Gregorian version of it that was recorded by monks from southern France who are not allowed to speak they can only chant, you know, and I, there was something wonderful about that. And here is this psalm that David is asking actually for permission to build the first temple to house the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant. And God, if you believe in such, turns him down and says, no, you can't build this temple because your hands are filled with blood. And some of the blood from that long ago, centuries ago, was Syrian blood. He had conquered Syria. 
as part of, of, of other places also that were conquered by those tribes at that time. 2014 for me was a critical venture in my own life. Not that people need to know that, but I went through some high-risk operations. So the idea of healing meant a lot to me. It was also exactly the year when the Syrian civil war turned into what we now are confronting, to the degree we're confronting. My idea was, could one enter a gallery and can the artist achieve a state of being that would put them into the intention of this psalm or the feeling of it as a precondition of setting up to be able to watch images from the Syrian war, which were taken from online, but posted by small militant groups. So it wasn't news footage. Because I think we've been overexposed to some disastrous news footage or taunted by it at a time. But these are to bring you closer and further at the same time from moments where you see that the ground is completely devastated, that there are just soldiers who are almost lost in a field of abyss. And that's a very severe juxtaposition. But I do feel that places like Syria are at the very heart of what we're dealing with worldwide right now, affecting so many places, so many governments, so many ideologies, so much culture that it had to be commented upon. I think there is a sadness, but it's not meant only to be sad. It's meant to to really contemplate in a very deep feeling way where we're at right now. And maybe to come away when you come out of the chamber, you realize what we have and what we've lost. It's a, a sad work, but it's a, I think it's a very potent work. We'll have installation images up on manpodcast.com so people can understand better the, the, the inside, the outside, the physical move into the space and out of the space. But if, 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 the, if that exhibition was a kind of experiment, and you kind of describe it as such a little bit, what did you learn from it? Did, did, it, did it work out and have the, the mental clarity or mental washing effect? I don't think it's a clarity. I think it's more asking a very big question. You know, I, I don't think it's going to... I think what it clarifies is the devastation of our state of being right now. You know, and it, it's, it's not tweeted at you, you know. It, it, it's almost like a, a elongated, deep-feeling poem, very emotive work which I I still think even works like Wonder Woman were very visceral pieces as well, very emotive. And do do you come away from Wonder Woman just to look at it 40 years later? Well, you come away probably, some people come away laughing and saying that's Wonder Woman, but others look and say, gosh, you, you're either real or you're not real. You're super real, but where's the space to live in between? 
And I think this, too, is the from the idyllic to the desperation we've created on this planet, where is the space that we're going to live in between? Opposition denialism, yeah. And, of course, as we've, as we've learned in the John Stewart, Stephen Colbert era, humor and humor can be part of the critique. <laughs> it, it can be. Unfortunately, I don't have enough humor. <laughs> I have a friend who says the only good artwork is artwork of humor. This is not a humorous piece, but it's, it is a prayer. And I, you can reject that, as many people do, but I tend not to. I think it's a little brave, to be honest, to try to make a prayer in a gallery. But I think that the substance of what prayer means, which is a form of reaching out to find solution or to find one way, one's way out of devastation, becomes a very important feeling to get in touch with at this point in time. Dara Birnbaum, thanks so much. Oh, you're welcome. The Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth presents Donald Sultan, The Disaster Paintings, illustrating robust man-made structures such as industrial plants and train cars. Sultan's works exhibit a level of fragility in their propensity to be unhinged by catastrophic events. Distinguished for combining such subject matter with industrial materials such as tar and masonite tiles, the disaster paintings exemplify in both media and concept the vulnerability of the most progressive manufactured elements of modern culture. On view in Fort Worth through April 23rd. Also, focus Stanley Whitney. Taking the essentialist grid of minimalism as his cue, the artist's configurations are loose, uneven geometric lattices comprised of vibrant stacked color blocks, that vary in hue, shape, and the handling of the paint. More at themodern.org. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Jimmy Durham at the Center of the World. Durham's first North American retrospective, this unprecedented exhibition of nearly 200 works by the artist and activist is on view from January 29th through May 7th. See the Hammer Museum's newly renovated galleries filled with Durham sculptures, video work, and installations most never shown in Los Angeles. Also on view this season, the first in-depth museum exhibition dedicated to the drawings of Jean de Buffet, a selection of works by Liz Craft from the Hammer Contemporary Collection, and Hammer Projects featuring work by Simon Denny and Kevin Beasley. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. Hammer Museum. Free admission and free for good. Welcome back. My next guest is Julie J. Thompson, the curator of Begin to See the Photographers of Black Mountain College. Her exhibition surveys photography made at Black Mountain College, from landscapes to documentary work to experiments with the medium and beyond. The show is at the Black Mountain College Museum and Arts Center in Asheville, through May 20th. Thompson's excellent catalog is available from the museum for $20. We'll have a link right to the museum store on manpodcast.com. As you may recall, this is the third recent Man Podcast episode to look at Black Mountain College. Curator Helen Molesworth discussed her Leap Before You Look exhibition on the show in February 2016, and her assistant curator, Ruth Erickson, joined me to discuss educational practice at the school last November. Julie Thompson, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. 
Thank you. Photographs have long provided us with a great deal of visual information about what life was like at Black Mountain College. But was photography taught, studied, and pursued as a discipline there? It was. And I think that's kind of the interesting part of this exhibition that I've curated because I think we've been looking at these photographs for so long and kind of using them for information. And we've learned a lot about Black Mountain College and the people who were there. But it kind of in doing that, it, it kind of became apparent that we haven't looked as much as who took these photographs. And so I think that was one of the questions that I was really interested in. And then looking through Mary Emma Harris's uh, The Arts at Black Mountain College, noticing the number of people who were listed as teaching photography. And largely that was often during the summer sessions. But I kind of wanted to dig deeper into this history. And I think that allowed me to see how Joseph Albers was really involved in the 1930s in photography, both making photographs himself as well as kind of working with students on it. But like even there was this photo study group that got started in 1939. And so Albers also played this very big role in photography being part of the curriculum, but it kind of came into the curriculum gradually and then more intentionally by him. So I kind of didn't know all of these things going in, but all of these pieces kind of emerged during my research. Well, you mentioned Albers. In 1933, Joseph Albers goes to Black Mountain, of course, as the head of the painting program. But by the early 1940s, he's interested in, in photography. And you open the catalog with kind of a remarkable three-page spread from a magazine called Craft Horizons. What What is that spread and, and what does it show us? I think the, the story that often gets told about Joseph Albers and photography is that, you know, it was something he did kind of private and kept private and he did a number of photo collages throughout his years and those are kind of just coming to light now. And even the group that he made while he was at the Bauhaus is on display at MoMA currently. But I think looking at Joseph Albers and photography in Black Mountain College, there are these kind of public moments, which I think only by putting them together kind of through the archive becomes apparent. And one of those is the the designing essay, which was written by Annie Albers, and it was published in Craft Horizons magazine in 1943. But there are three photographs by Joseph in it, and they... They're they're kind of from the early period. He actually began photographing um, when he was at the Bauhaus. He acquired a Leica camera in 1928. And so he's, by the time he gets to Black Mountain College in 1933, he's been, I would say, maybe more experimenting, but, you know, making photographs, taking them, developing them to some degree. And he, he has his photo collages that he makes and things too. But that kind of he and Annie collaborate and these three photographs get published in Craft Horizons along with her magazine, I just thought was astounding. And there's also the instruction that goes with them that says the illustrations accompanying this article will repair careful study and thought. And so it's kind of thinking of the text working as one way, the photographs working as another, then working together in even another way, which to my mind just really brought to mind James Agee's and Walker Evans, kind of the the way they discussed the photographs and the text working in Let Us Now Praise Famous Men. So I think there's that moment of Joseph Albers's photographs being reproduced with this essay with Annie, but then he also writes a letter to the editor, to U.S. Camera, about how photography is part of the curriculum at Black Mountain College. And, you know, kind of at that point when he writes that, it's still a little more in this kind of informal 
way versus kind of formal instruction, but there is this, there are discussions, there are students working on it together. He's giving students feedback too. So it emerges gradually. And then he also gives a lecture about photography in 1943. I love the cut lines on the three Joseph Albers pictures in the Annie Albers essay. One is a picture of seafoam on a beach and the cut line refers to it as multiple form in nature. There is a photograph of a road snaking through the Southern Appalachians or the Blacks, and the cut line on that is simplified, useful form. And there's a photograph of an ornate gate with a cloud-filled sky beyond, and the cut line on that is multiple forms in art. It seems like Albers is consciously referring to forms in an effort to link these pictures to, to practices. And I think this is kind of that space that gets open of... And I, I think Harry Callahan talks about it, and I, I quote him in the exhibition catalog essay. But you know, these kind of these photographs aren't just documentary photographs. You could say, you know, that's those are waves on the beach. You know, the the tide coming into the beach. You could say this is a bend in the highway road. You could say this is a very ornate gate, which was taken in Mexico. But you know, I think exactly the attention you're drawing to those captions it makes them something else. They have a place in the world, and they were made with a camera, but it's also it kind of opens up this other space of formal composition and photographic scene that is really exciting to see taking form and having a public kind of audience for too. Photographers begin to visit the school, begin to visit Black Mountain. Were they invited, or did they find it on their own, and who were some of the photographers who visited? So I think it varies. And some of it, you know, I think I found a lot of the kind of archival trails of letters that were formal invitations. There's so much kind of archival evidence that spread across multiple collections that I'm sure more will hopefully be found in the future, too. But like Helen M. Post was a freelance photographer who visited in 1937. There's correspondence about Helen M. Post's visit. I wasn't ever able to find kind of the actual invitation to her, but Bobby Dreyer, who's the wife of Ted Dreyer, who's one of the faculty at Black Mountain College, she talks about Helen M. Post being there and how she is a freelance photographer who's worked with, with kind of national magazines. And Helen M. Post creates this amazing group of photographs of daily life and teaching at Black Mountain College, a lot in the classroom and also kind of out in the work program and on the farm. And those photographs, again, have been reproduced, but just like kind of her being this casual visitor that we know she was there because of the photographs and we, we know kind of when she was there, but there's also a lot more to still kind of maybe piece together and figure out. So there's a number of kind of New York or national photographers who kind of dip in and sometimes they were there for weeks or sometimes for just a few days. And those are kind of spread throughout the newsletters of the college. But then there's also the more formal invitations. And those kind of start after Joseph Albers gives a lecture about photography in 1943, and then starting in, in the Summer Art Institute session in 1944, that's kind of when the first visiting photographers come as part of the summer program. And those first visiting photographers who taught photography were Joseph Breitenbach and Barbara Morgan. And then that kind of continues through the 1940s. 
50s. And, you know, the interesting part is who's invited as well as and who comes, but also who is invited and, and does not come. So Joseph Albers wrote Andreas Feiniger. He also wrote Bernice Abbott. Later, Hazel Larson Archer, who actually started as a student as a photographer and becomes faculty teaching photography officially in 49. She also invites for a special 1951 Summer Art Institute, Harry Callahan, Aaron Siskind, and Arthur Siegel, but also like another person who she invites who, you know, declines her invitation is Walker Evans. So it's, it's amazing too about who they who was on their horizon in terms of who they were inviting and who actually came but kind of these invitations of people who didn't come to also reveal their interests and knowledge of kind of photography and creative photography in the 1940s and 1950s another photographer who shows up is Beaumont Newhall how does he end up at Black Mountain and what impact does he have I think there's pieces of the story that I know and then I think there's still probably pieces that that will need to be uncovered even further. But basically, my understanding is that Joseph Albers and Beaumont Newhall meet kind of in some way in New York, and then Albers follows up with an invitation. And Albers writes Beaumont Newhall right as Newhall's in the process of resigning from his curatorial appointment at MoMA. And so it's a really interesting moment for Beaumont, kind of as he's transitioning careers, he ends up coming for three summers, which also, you know, that first summer when Joseph Albers invited him, you know, was not known that he would kind of be there for three consecutive summers. And the first summer he teaches kind of his history of photography, which grows out of all of his curatorial work and then kind of his first book. But then the second and third summers, he's actually he has his Guggenheim Fellowship and is revising his history of photography to kind of be the landmark book of of photographic history that it becomes that gets published by MoMA in 49. And so he's kind of changing things of his own writing and, and teaching. Black Mountain College is his kind of first chance to teach a college audience for an extended period. And then even in 1947, he offers kind of a technical class, though kind of the other summers he gives more informal technical advice about photography too. In the book, you break down photographic practice at Black Mountain into five categories. Kind of broadly speaking, these are my descriptions, not your titles. They are light, documentary, performance, experiments with the medium, and landscape and place. We, we talked about documentary a little bit at, at the open. I think for people who haven't been to the Southern Appalachians, it's hard to know or understand the light there, but I think these pictures really communicate it really well. It's more like a Western light than, than light anywhere on the East Coast I've ever been. And artists from all kinds of backgrounds played with this light. How so and how do we see that in the pictures? The category that I came up with to talk about light, I labeled available light because I think there is very much this kind of consciousness and engagement of natural light. And really, the one of the people who we see kind of making the most or also kind of cultivating the attentiveness to light um, is Hazel Larson Archer. And I mentioned her briefly, but, you know, she was a student. She started as a student at Black Mountain College and transitions to teaching. And she deeply believed in kind of learning to see light. And, and I think there's this technical point, too, of I think Beaumont Newhall, as well as Harry Callahan, kind of expressed comments 
both of them mentioned how the students at Black Mountain College didn't use light meters. And so there was this kind of technical practice of photography that could be used with a light meter. And I understand not everyone uses a light meter, but I think there is something that comes through in this attentiveness to the light, to light at Black Mountain College that the photographers did see it as a creative choice and also something that they could bring in to express things, to show things differently. But it's also very rooted in their attentiveness to the light. One of your categories is performing for the camera. It's not quite documentation of performance art, but it's not quite mere documentation of what people were doing on a Thursday at 3 p.m. either. What are some of these pictures and what's their relationship to to the actual performances themselves? The way that I discuss performing for the camera and why it kind of came out as a category is I think there are these really, some of these are the really iconic photographs of Black Mountain College. And they have this really unique energy to them as well. And they were exactly as you kind of say, they're not a documentation of an event. They're kind of a photographer and sometimes a dancer, sometimes various individuals working together to kind of create something for the camera in a different way. Some of the iconic photographs are Hazel Larson Archer's of Merce Cunningham dancing. They're amazing. And and I think there's there's more in the series that than are in the exhibition, but just kind of the the ones in the four that are in the exhibition in the catalog are him lifting off from the ground but in various and different ways. And so I love thinking of that moment of him kind of doing the leap into the air and the dance move and her deciding when to make the exposure and when to click the camera. You know, that is this consciousness that but of what both are doing, but then there's also all these different choices that the photographer makes in that process and and what to capture. And then also after looking at the contact sheet, you know, which ones make it to the final level of print um, that I just thought was really exciting. Another photograph. Can I ask one question about those Hazel Larson archers before moving on? All four of the pictures in the show feature Merce Cunningham in the air. His feet is not, are not on the ground in any of them. When you looked at the contact sheet, is Archer consciously picking pictures of, of Cunningham aloft? So, there are photographs of him when he is on the ground and in various poses, but I do think these four where he is completely in the air, they have this great sense of freedom. And there's one where his head is, is kind of beyond the frame and he kind of becomes pure form too, as well as just kind of how the shadows of his movements also kind of transform the movement and are part of her photographs as well. You were about to go on to another example before I interrupted on, on the Cunningham Archer pictures. The example I was going to mention um, is actually Jonathan Williams' photograph of Francine Duplessis-Gray and Joel Oppenheimer. And in this one, I think so I think this idea of, of photographing a dancer is a very, a dance is a performance. And so kind of the performing for the camera has a performance element in it already. But I think in this Jonathan Williams, this this photograph feels very much like kind of a moment and kind of even a moment of response to Jonathan Williams being there and present with the camera. And we don't know the conversations that kind of produce this photograph, but Joel Oppenheimer is leaning in close 
to the camera and he's grimacing actually. And then Francine Duplessis Gray has her arms on her hips and she just kind of has this elegant statuesque pose. And it's just a tremendous composition, but this awareness of the camera and kind of having a personality that comes through the camera, it's just one of my favorites in this category. It's also pretty darn funny. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And and I think that's the, I think that's, it has the spirit and life, but it does have a funness to it, which I think that was part of Black Mountain College too. You know, I mean, kind of, they were, everyone was together and around 24 hours a day, living together, eating together. But there's also a lot of fun moments too. And a fu- in, in the education, as well as, you know, in just the moments on campus. So some of that fun ended up fueling experiments with the photographic medium itself, with 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 chemicals and paper and compositions and ideas. You, you bunched these pictures in a section called experimentation, and there were wildly divergent pictures. What were photographers and non-photographers, such as Robert Rauschenberg, experimenting with? Well, I think one thing that kind of came to light was that the photogram was a big part of 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 this section. But it also, you know, there's not, oh, here, you can tell this is the photogram assignment. You know, there was nothing that was quite that concrete that came through. And I think there's this strain of really individual experimentation that comes through in this category, which I talk about some. But I guess it was really exciting to the Joseph and Anna Albers Foundation has a photogram that was made by a student who, who's no longer known, but it has kind of these silver circles glued on top of it. So even taking the photogram as a, a photographic process and as a project, but then kind of collaging onto it this other layer. So I think that kind of additive layer kind of comes through in some of these. Also, we discovered that Annie Albers and Nancy Newhall collaborated on photograms, and this is in the catalog and in the exhibition is one of two that are known so far. So that's really fascinating. And again, not yet certain of what exactly led to that. But I think, too, there's some, you brought up Rauschenberg, um, and he studies photography with Hazel Larson Archer at Black Mountain College. But kind of he and Sue Weil are at Black Mountain College in 1948. They leave for New York for a little bit. And she knows this kind of blueprint photographic process because of a portrait of her grandmother. And so they do, they work on those collaborative while they're away. And then Rauschenberg returns to Black Mountain College in 51 and I think really pursues photography more vigorously, even though he kind of started it in 49 too. So, you know, and then there's even two, um, he experiments kind of with double exposures in the photograph that's in the exhibition, just kind of where the, the placement of the composition within the frame. So there's just a lot of exploration and experimentation. And I think that's also what Black Mountain College encouraged students to find. There were formal exercises and formal learning, but that was also always working towards the individual finding paths and ways of working for themselves, too, in their kind of own unique ways. In closing, Hazel Larson Archer emerges as kind of, at least to my eye, the star of the show. She pops up in almost every section. Is she kind of the great discovery of the project for you? I don't 
don't think she's actually a discovery for me, but if this exhibition allows more people to discover her, I would be delighted in that. The Black Mountain College Museum and Art Center did a wonderful exhibition of her photographs um, in the early 2000s. And I think in some ways I've been poring over that catalog for years. And so I think Hazel's engagement with photography and Alice Sebrill has written about Hazel and photography in the Leap Before You Look catalog in some wonderful ways too, but also kind of placing Hazel within this larger context and the photographers who she learned from as well as the photographers who she taught uh, does allow us to see her kind of in an expanded field. So I think previously maybe we thought of Hazel more of she took all these amazing photographs or, you know, you might note her name on the credit line. And for me, I was I started learning about Black Mountain College through the student Ray Johnson. And Hazel has taken some phenomenal photographs of Ray Johnson. And I think kind of there were seeds planted in these are not kind of the usual approach to, to photographing a person that kind of plays out. So I think the one thing, too, that this exhibition allowed me to do is talk about the really important and influential roles that both Joseph Albers and Hazel Larson Archer played in the practice of photography, but also making photography part of the curriculum at Black Mountain College. So she is definitely kind of a, a hero in that. And her students include Stan Vanderbeek. Uh, Nick Cernovich, Robert Rauschenberg, Cy Twombly, and I don't think maybe everyone, oh, and as well as, of course, Andy Oates, who was the first and only graduate in photography from Black Mountain College. And maybe, I think sometimes she gets mentioned in those individuals' careers, but, you know, they really got to engage with photography first at Black Mountain College. She went on to a career as an educator, died in 2001. There was a flurry of exhibition and publishing around her work in the mid-aughts, about 10 years ago. The show you mentioned at Black Mountain in Asheville was in 2006, and in 2005, four years after Archer's passing, uh, Aperture published a book of the Merce Cunningham motion studies that, that Archer photographed. So people hopefully encountered her previously there, but also if anyone who visited the Leap Before You Look exhibition probably noticed a lot of her photographs of kind of the individual artists throughout that exhibition. And so I think this is kind of another chapter in the story of learning more about Hazel, her photography, as well as the amazing kind of career in education and art education that was part of her life. Julie Thompson, thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.